In June 2017, Hannah Scandera stepped down as Public Education Secretary of New Mexico, marking the end of seven years of hard-charging reform in a state that's historically been among the nation's lowest performing. Her tenure was contentious throughout, starting with a debate about her qualifications for the position and ending with her signature reform, a new teacher evaluation system tied up in the courts. Amidst all that controversy, what will be Scandera's legacy? And what lessons do her successes and challenges hold for the next generation of reform leaders? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Michael McShane, director of national research at EdChoice and author of a deep dive into Scandera's tenure in the land of enchantment that's available now at educationnext.org. Mike, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be with you again. So Hannah Scandera was nominated to be Secretary of Public Education in New Mexico by Republican Governor Martinez shortly after Martinez's 2010 election. But that nomination wasn't actually confirmed by the state Senate until 2015. Why not? And what happened in the interim? Yeah, so from the outset, uh, Hannah Scandera was a controversial nominee. So she came to the land of enchantment from Florida. She'd been working closely in the kind of ed reform space of uh, Jeb Bush and other kind of similar right of center reformers that were popular at that time. And uh, the folks in the Senate didn't uh, like that she was being nominated, uh, and they had the opportunity to block that. Now, they used a somewhat obscure constitutional provision, I guess, in the New Mexico Constitution that says that the um, Secretary of Education has to be a, an educator. And uh, she did not have experience uh, as an educator, and so they were able to use those kind of procedural grounds to hold it up. Now, this uh, opposition didn't last forever. Uh, after a couple of years, she was appointed in the interim basis and basically was just able to, to continue doing her job as if she had, uh, had been confirmed. Eventually that wore down and she was confirmed, but she did have to work in a kind of acting capacity for the first couple of years of her tenure. I believe her title was secretary designate for some of this period. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, and it, it raises the question, what exactly is meant by the term educator in language like that? Of course, Scandera by this time had a long career of working in education at all levels, except, I guess, uh, in the classroom. She had worked uh, under Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger in California, as well as you mentioned, under Jeb Bush in Florida. So certainly a lot of experience in education. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we uh, perhaps want to look at the play more cynically, we might say that the, the folks who opposed her, her nomination were trying to find something, trying to find some way to disqualify her. And, and this was um, one thing that they looked for. But I have to imagine if it wasn't this, it was going to be something else. Yeah, it seems like they were concerned about the substance of her agenda and or what they expected her to pursue when she came into office. So what was her agenda? What did the Skandera uh, era entail? So, broadly speaking, New Mexico pursued what we might call or what has been come, become known in the education reform world as the quote-unquote Florida model. Now, I, I think I should probably pause at this point and say, you know, uh, both in my interview uh, with Hannah Skandera and others, folks that have been involved in this movement kind of chafe against 
calling everything the Florida model. Um, just because the, the policies were similar, it wasn't that it was just a cookie-cutter thing that was done. It was what was popular at the time. So that, that caveat having been said, um, the real thing that she pursued was school accountability. Um, this was the time when they made a, a transition to the Common Core Standards, and she and her office worked to revamp the way that schools were evaluated. And the real centerpiece of the work that she did was a revamping of the state's teacher evaluation system that uh, – really kind of followed the, the broad outline of the Gates Measures of Effective Teaching Project, worked to include value-added measures of teachers and others, and aggressive stances around things like teacher absenteeism and others to, to evaluate teachers. One of the ironies here, of course, is that that was exactly the agenda that was being pushed nationally by the Democratic Obama administration through Race to the Top and the ESEA waiver program, New Mexico was not, I believe, a race to the top state. So here you had a controversial Republican appointee carrying out an overall of teacher evaluation, but without the federal resources to uh, make it more attractive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and fascinating, yes, the, the majority of the pushback in the legislature was actually from Democrats. So the, the sort of cross currents uh, that New Mexico are really fascinating, right? Like, what was going on at the national level versus what was going on there, even in the sort of commentary talking about what was going on in, in education at the time, when we think of those places where kind of aggressive envelope-pushing education reform took place, people talk about Tennessee or Washington, D.C. or Louisiana. People don't frequently bring up New Mexico, and I think that uh, they should because insofar as, as you said, things like accountability and teacher evaluation policy and others were kind of hallmarks of this particular time period of education reform. New Mexico was responsible for about as, you know, kind of fully articulated the visions of those policy areas as we saw anywhere in America. And that included something that you don't pay a lot of attention to in, in your narrative, which was her embrace of the Common Core as well, another key national in initiative that was embraced by reform-oriented Democrats. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what the way she described both the standards and the assessments that went with it was that her first task as the uh, you know as the head of education for the state of New Mexico was truth telling. So her argument is that for years and years before leaders were not telling parents, taxpayers, families the truth about how poorly students were actually performing. There was a whole lot of kind of happy talk about what was going on, and someone needed to show up and say, hey, this isn't working as well as people thought that they were. So she thought uh, highly of the Common Core standards and the assessments that were related to them and thought could do the best job of or do at least uh, a good enough job of, uh, of demonstrating the truth about how well or how poorly students were actually performing. And perhaps you could extend that truth-telling emphasis over to the design of the teacher evaluation system, which you described a bit earlier in the article. You refer to data where, that show that New Mexico's system was really an outlier among all of the new state evaluation systems developed during this period in terms of actually identifying a substantial number of teachers as not up to standard. Yes, that's exactly right. I think New Mexico, more than almost any other place that I know of, worked 
to develop assessments in as broad of a set of subjects and grades as they possibly could. So one of the reasons that lots of other teacher evaluation programs around the country do not do as good of a job differentiating individual teacher performance is that for teachers in non-tested subjects, um, they get some kind of composite grade based on their whole school or their whole grade level. And if you assign everybody the same grade, almost axiomatically, you're, you're not going to see a lot of variation between them. And so what New Mexico did was really try to find in the early grades and other end of course exams and other subjects, really find assessments that measured how well students were doing in a broad variety of subjects. And therefore, they were able to create teacher evaluation systems that were able to give differentiated results for a much wider variety of teachers. And I think, I think it's sort of, as, as you said leading into the question, I mean, it, it speaks to that broader idea of truth-telling. So it's not just sort of glossing over things by giving everybody the same score, but working very hard to get sort of individualized assessment of as many subjects, as many students, as many teachers as possible. And that begins to point in the direction of some of the controversy associated with her tenure that I referred to earlier. Uh, it's no surprise to hear that the unions were not a big fan to her moves on teacher evaluation. But one of the things I learned from your article is that there was also some skepticism uh, from the other side of the political spectrum as well. So what did conservatives object to about Scandera's agenda? So this is an important point, and I think speaks to a bit of a divide that has been growing in the past several years um, within the kind of right side of the education reform movement. So the critics on the right of um, the, the teacher evaluation system or the school accountability system were that it was too complicated, it was too technocratic, it was too basically kind of central plenary for their comfort. So a lot of people on the right in education reform lean much more sort of libertarian, free market. They are opposed to centralized government dictates trying to uh, impose order on vast systems like that. So you had a lot of folks who said, listen, um, I don't understand how schools are being held accountable. I don't understand how teachers are being held accountable. And we don't really think that the state government is going to do a good job of doing this. Interestingly, I mean, I think this is something that we're seeing magnified on a national level, where a lot of the more traditional conservative coalition for education reform that was united around things like accountability and teacher evaluation um, are seeing splits between the folks who still kind of are gung-ho for that and those who are much more on the side of school choice and decentralization, uh, private school choice, charter schools, all of those types of issues. So that is something that I think happened within, and to be fair, to a degree kind of preceded Hannah Scandera because the last Republican governor before Susanna Martinez was Gary Johnson, who was a very pro-school choice, libertarian-leaning Republican, wasn't able to actually get as much done. I think throughout his whole tenure, I believe he had a Democrat, uh, democratically uh, controlled legislature. But those, those kind of undercurrents, a more libertarian-leaning Republican coalition underneath um, and the, the sort of changing winds at the national level all intersected with what she was trying to do.
And I'm glad you just brought up the issue of school choice to the extent that there is a Florida model, and I take your point earlier that uh, that's probably not exactly the right way to think about it, but I would assume that would typically be understood to include a heavy emphasis on the expansion of school choice, both charter schools and efforts to uh, enact private school choice programs. That doesn't seem to have been a centerpiece of Scandera's time in New Mexico. You did see, I guess, steady growth in the size of the state's charter sector, but not much more than that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there was nominal support for school choice. I think that there was some burnout from the Gary Johnson years. I think that had been much more of an emphasis during his tenure as governor. And so a lot of folks that were on the ground in the state didn't want to have another school choice uh, fight that they had felt like they had lost the last time. But, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was just a question of emphasis. I don't think, um, to my knowledge, that, that Hannah Peter was opposed to uh, school choice. It just wasn't where she put the bulk of her emphasis. So some Republicans were complaining about the direction of affairs, but it was really primarily Democrats and the teachers' unions who were most vociferous in their objections. And as you note in the article, the unions shifted the playing field to the courts. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how exactly they challenged the evaluation system and where things stand procedurally now? Oh, goodness. So this is like one of those ones where you go to the baseball game and you won't know the players without a scorecard. So it's actually tough to keep all of these in line because there have been several lawsuits over the course, uh, the, the, the course of the last several years about various aspects of these programs. So there was a lawsuit related. One of the things that, that I hadn't brought up during the, the teacher evaluation segment um, one of the issues was counting teacher absentee uh, absences as part of their evaluation. So that was something that I think they were more aggressive at at the beginning. That was challenged under certain grounds in the courts. They have since backed off with the, the number of absences that can be included before it negatively impacts um, students. And then there have been other questions around uh, the teacher evaluation system and uh, the degree to which the state can dictate these things, so like the state can dictate the hiring and firing or the, the sort of censure of what should be sort of locally managed school systems. And, and at different times, these lawsuits have been combined and separated and put together. So the, 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 the key issue between all of them was that back in 2015, there was an injunction put in place that says, with the teacher evaluation system, no consequences can be tied to it yet or now. Um, the, the data can still be collected, the reports can be run, but consequential decisions cannot be made until the lawsuit is resolved. Perhaps not the worst possible outcome if that gives them time to refine the system, get used to it, and figure out how best to use the information. So this is a fascinating this is a fascinating question, right? Because I think there are sort of two ways of of looking at this. So one, which I think would be the more traditional interpretation, is saying, well, look, here's what the unions are able to do. They're able to block this. They're able to slow it down. They're able to prevent any real consequences from being attached to it. So even if they can't win in the in the legislature, the court of public opinion, by grinding down the gears. 
um, they can't bring anything forward, and this is the, the union winning, even if they ultimately maybe don't win in the, the lawsuit. But the other interpretation, and one that I think was brought to my attention by Chris Rudzikowski, who is Hannah Scandera's successor, um, he looks at these lawsuits in, in some ways as, as kind of the cost of doing business. That if you're going to try and do new things in a state, it's going to be subject to a lawsuit. It's going to happen. And while it's winding through the courts, they, uh, in his argument, are making good faith efforts to address fundamentally what some of the concerns are. So giving more power back to local areas, making mid-course adjustments um, to things like the, the weight of value-added scores and to the weight of the, the days of, um, of absenteeism and all of those sorts of issues. Uh, and so he's almost taking it, and I think sort of toward the end of the Scandera tenure as well, look, this is an opportunity. We can work on this. We can refine it. We can make it better. So when it actually rolls out and is evaluating um, teachers, uh, it's much more ready for prime time. And I have to say, I, w I went into a lot of these interviews in with the first perspective and walked out probably feeling more of the second perspective of thinking like, yeah, this is just something that's going to happen and gives them an opportunity to make some mid-course corrections that they might not have been able to make if in that first year or second year these would have been used in consequential decisions, that people would have gotten fired or those things happened. I mean, that could have ended up being disastrous, and now they have an opportunity to do something about that. What's fascinating about that is that by the time any court renders its judgment on any technical aspects of the system, the judgment will largely have been rendered moot by the fact that the system has changed in the while the issue was in the court. I think that's exactly right. And 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 there's a there's a quotation from from Christopher Zikowski in there that sort of says at the end of the day, um, you know, as leaders move forward, they're going to have to make a decision. Is this something that we want to keep pursuing? We've been working on this. We've been refining it. We've been making mistakes and learning from them over the course of the last several years. Is this something that we want to abandon, or is this something that we want to continue doing? And as you might imagine, his money is on. They're going to say, look, we've, been in, we've invested time and energy into this. Let's try and make it work. So let's turn to trying to assess Scandera's legacy. And as you note in the article, it's very difficult to look at student outcomes when a leader steps out of office and use those in real time to render any confident judgments. Uh, ultimately, the question comes down to what comes next, and that starts with her successor, someone you just mentioned. So who is Chris Ruzkowski? So he is a, a, an education official that previously worked in Delaware um, and has been uh, a kind of uh, working with uh, Hannah Scandera from before he sort of took over, before she left. Um, he has an academic pedigree from Stanford and other places. He's a really kind of uh, similarly uh, sharp, um, reform-minded uh, education leader um, who appears to be, um, I think by all accounts, pursuing a pretty similar set of reforms uh, and issues as his predecessor. So I think this is one of those cases where we, we've seen in a few places, I think we saw in Washington, D.C., kind of Michelle Ree and then Kaya Henderson. Uh, we saw down in Louisiana, Paul Pasterick and then John White. This is a, one of the few examples where we're actually seeing some continuity of thought 
between multiple education leaders, even though I will say from a sort of political background, um, Hans Kandura had almost always worked for Republicans, whereas um, whereas Chris Rosikowski came much more from uh, working with Democratic governors. So it could be similar policies but different politics, which I think is also sort of something to throw into the mix of all of this. Uh, presumably that is by design because uh, I believe New Mexico is heading into a gubernatorial election this year, and uh, Martinez, the Republican, is not able to run because of term limits. This is a state that Hillary Clinton won in 2016 by a substantial margin. So there's good reason to expect that we may have a Democratic governor coming in. Uh, it seems like a governor would be more likely to stick with someone uh, with Rosikowski's pedigree than Scandera's. I think that's probably right. I mean, I think if there's the central vulnerability to the policies that I think were pursued over the course of the last seven years um, is political, is um, a Democratic governor who wants to roll all of this stuff back. Um, I think that um, the approach that Chris Rosikowski is taking um, is one kind of bulwark against that. I think some of the stuff is still being resolved by the courts, perhaps is another bulwark against that. But I will say, several of the people that I spoke to on the ground seemed reasonably confident that uh, an, a, a subsequent governor would uh, take a hatchet to some of this. So unfortunately, I mean, we just, we just don't really know in the future. And, and, and it leads us to ask some of these questions about when we talk about education reform, how seriously should we take the sustainability of particular reforms, um, and how should we think about the politics of them? So what are the lessons for reformers elsewhere from your deep dive into Scandera's tenure in office? So I think one of the lessons that we have to take, and I think this is something that she would admit was true, that when she came out of the gate, she described having to any communication that she wanted to have with teachers or with a kind of ground level folks in education. She described having to play a game of telephone. So she had to go through superintendents and principals or administrators and at any point unions or other interest groups were able to to uh, interrupt that process. So one of them was about sort of communication. Later on in her tenure, she really tried to reach out to teachers more, developed these like advisory councils, worked with Teach Plus, uh, a sort of teacher voice organization to try and have more teacher voice that's in there. Um, so I think that that's probably the lessons around communicating the why of what you're doing, um, not taking a kind of my way or the highway approach from the beginning, but trying to, trying to um, communicate that why. But the second piece um, that I think education reformers around the country should think about, and I think really was kind of in, uh, cast in, re in relief in New Mexico, is the inherent contradictions in some of the things that education reformers say about school and school system improvement. And what I mean by that is you have folks who say, listen, we want to follow research-based practices in these things. So they they count the, the uh, measures of effective teaching, saying you have, need to have between 33 and 50 percent of a teacher's evaluation based in VAM. They look at particular teacher evaluation tools and say, listen, research is verified that these are the best at what they do, so we're going to use this evaluation tool and we're going to balance this much VAM with it, and this is kind of what we have to do. And in the same breath, they say, and we want to have teacher voice and teacher input 
and have them as an active part of the process. But there's a, you know, the contradiction there is like, well, no, you've already decided this is how much you want VAM to count, and this is the tools that you want to use. So the teachers' voices don't actually have all that much to say, or they can't, they can maybe kind of tinker around the edges of what you're talking about. So I think that the education reform movement writ large needs to take a hard look at, like, what does it actually want, and what do those processes need to look like? Is it saying we want to go into a state believing that X, Y, and Z need to happen, and we're going to push for that regardless of what's going on at the ground level, or do we need to go into states and first kind of build the groundwork to convince people that X, Y, and Z need to happen and have a much more bottom-up approach in trying to make it happen? The second one is substantially more difficult. It doesn't fit into a glossy, like, annual report as easy. But I do think it's something that the movement as a whole has to think about. You begin the conclusion of the article by writing, there's good reason to believe that there will be fewer Hannah Scanderas in the future. Uh, I hope by that you mean uh, that we'll see leaders who are going to pursue this somewhat refined agenda along the lines of what you just described, rather than fewer leaders with her obvious courage and conviction. Absolutely. I mean, and that's what I want to be. I want to be clear. I mean, I admire her courage and her conviction, and particularly at the time that she was starting, you know, a lot of these lessons have been learned around the country while she was doing what she's doing. So expecting her to have learned lessons that hadn't happened yet, um, I think, is an unrealistic expectation to push back uh, on her. But what, the reason that I think there will be fewer of these folks is that this, this position of the hard-charging central leader kind of leading the charge of, of things, partially just because it seems, and, and maybe this is why I'm cut out to write about people who do this stuff and not be one of those people, um, but it seems just a really kind of miserable. I mean, what you have is a lot of advocacy groups and others that love to fight at the beginning. They want to see the teacher evaluation system passed or the new charter school law passed, and then they are not nearly as interested in all the really difficult work that needs to happen after that to bring everybody up to speed and to regulate all of those sorts of issues. Um, there seems to be a lot less interest in all of those things. And so that hard-charging, reform-minded superintendent has this kind of big group of people to help in the initial push to get this stuff done, and then it's sort of left on their own to fight it out with everybody. So, I mean, if there's perhaps another lesson that we need to have from this, if you're inclined to support these policies, the, the, the fight doesn't stop when the law gets passed. The fight doesn't stop when the program is initiated. That's only the beginning. So if you want more Hannah Scanderas, you have to continue to support them long after the law is passed or the program starts. And that, that has to change. I mean, that's from a funding perspective. That's from an advocacy perspective. All of the everyone else needs to learn that lesson. My guest today has been Mike McShane. Director of National Research at EdChoice, and I'm happy to say, a frequent contributor to Education Next and this podcast. His article on the New Mexico reform story is available now at educationnext.org. Mike, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, as always. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.